0: The Guardian. Silicon Valley is a hotbed of drama, and we've long been fascinated by the cult figures at the top.
1: He stepped down, but after he read the details of his entire ouster splashed across the front page of the New York Times, he was not happy and, and tried to fight his way back in for a few months, to no avail, but still... <laughs>
0: The story of Travis Kalanick, the former CEO of Uber, is a cautionary tale for anyone who thinks they can bully the press, pressurise government officials into rewriting the rules, and disrupt their way around criticism. Because rest assured, if there's a shady underbelly, somebody's going to start digging.
1: My point has always been, like, if you want people to not dig into your weird projects, that don't name them something that sounds like a James <laughs> Bond movie, right?
0: I'm Jordan Erica Webber, and this week I'm sitting down with Mike Isaac, technology correspondent for The New York Times, whose book, Super Pumped, tells the story of the rise and spectacular fall of one of Uber's founders. This is Chips With Everything.
1: My name is Mike Isaac. I'm a technology reporter for The New York Times and author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber.
0: Being a tech reporter for the New York Times, you cover a range of Silicon Valley's biggest companies. Mm. So, why did you choose to focus on Uber for your first book? Were you more interested in the company or its former CEO? I th- <laughs> well, it's
1: probably a little bit of both. I think I started covering Uber in 2014, but by 2017, if you can remember, it was just their nightmare year. They had you know scandal after scandal going and for every tech company I covered they usually kind of have it together at the top or there's some sort of solidarity around leadership but towards the end in this it was basically a giant knife fight and everyone was trying to like backstab each other. So it sort of like a combination of Succession meets Silicon Valley, the TV shows. I don't know if they have. Do they have that here?
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, got it. Yeah, we have television Do you here. have television here? <laughs> um, producer Danielle, actually, when she was reading the book, she was so enthralled by it, oh, kind and- of like it was this collection of scandalous stories. You explain this at the end of the book, but how did you get such good access to the stories you tell within?
1: Oh man, I think a few things. One, if you're doing a book, you have probably a little more leverage on who's going to talk to you, you know? And like I think it for like daily articles, people are can be a little more skittish or you might have to lean on certain sources, but when I was I just sort of announced that I was doing a book, it's basically like, look, I'm going to write the account of what what happened and you either can tell your side of it, or you can let someone else tell their side of it, you know, and I think it really scared people into talking to me, which is kind of the the way it works a lot of the time.
0: Is there also an element, do you think, of people just wanting to get their name on paper?
1: <laughs> Definitely. I think there's probably something more powerful about a book and like whatever it means to be like in that. And look, I think a lot of people don't look great in this book, and some maybe look better than others, so they probably wanted to make themselves or explain themselves, you know? And I I think that's important. And I tried to be actually pretty fair to everyone in this. Like I didn't, I think it's probably easy to make someone like Travis Kalanick, the former CEO into like a cartoon villain. And he definitely has his flaws, but I also tried to humanize him a little bit more than, than I think he was in 2017 in all the headlines.
0: Before we get to the company and its beginnings as Uber Cab, can mm. you bring us back to 2009 before we knew just how bro the culture was <laughs> in Silicon Valley? So we had people like Zuckerberg, Page, Musk. When Kalanick was trying to make it big, he was trying to get into the cult of founders. Yeah, yeah. So how big was that cult following at the time, and what were the consequences of it?
1: Yeah, I think, so this idea around the cult of the founder, I think, is pretty popular in Silicon Valley. They probably wouldn't call it that themselves, (laughs) but uh, one of the big sort of notions is that this idea of the... The Wonderkin CEO, you know, in his hoodie, programming the next huge app over like a bowl of ramen and making a billion dollars doing it, right? Mm-hmm. and and this mythology around young boy geniuses and giving them the power to change the world. And I think that became attractive when you look at what Zuckerberg did with Facebook and built this huge company. And Larry Page, Sergey Brin just sort of built Google. Evan Spiegel has Snapchat. And the idea that not only are they geniuses, but investors and boards of directors should hand all that power over to them to like let them do what they want, right? And that became, I guess if you want to look at it in a spectrum of maybe Zuckerberg is one positive outcome of that, or at least until 2016 was one positive outcome of that, then I was looking at, well, Travis might be the worst possible case scenario here in in the fact that things went to hell later on. But he, I mean, like this idea that founders have this sort of vaunted status in the valley, I think um, is pretty pervasive and continues today.
0: Let's talk about Travis Kalanick then. Who was he before Uber?
1: Yeah, Travis was kind of a serial entrepreneur, I would say. He did a few startups. One was a total failure. One was kind of a middling success. He sold uh, the second one, made it like a million dollars. So he was a millionaire, but a um, middle-class millionaire in Silicon <laughs> Valley, at least. And... Um, I think the big takeaway and everyone who's ever known travis or everyone that has ever worked with him will tell you he's probably the most driven aggressive ceo they've ever met right like whether it's going up against the recording industry of america or the motion picture association of america when he did his first startup which was basically like a proto version of napster like Mm -hmm. file sharing before it really existed or the taxi and limousine industry that uh is way more difficult to break into, I guess, in transportation. Um, he would always fight and always push and never really give an inch in how he would push his workers or himself to create this next great company. Because I think he also bought into the idea that he wanted to be the founder of, of the next great thing, whether that was earlier on a file sharing thing, but really later on just you know building Uber into the, the Amazon of transportation, basically.
0: What would you say he learned from these other ventures?
1: Yeah, so I think the most important probably part early on is he had a, with Scour, uh, the first uh, file sharing service he had, he got sued into oblivion basically by all of these, the recording companies, the movie companies. And one of his investors was this guy, Mike Ovitz. And he was like a super agent in Hollywood back in the day. And he, he wasn't really a tech investor, but he just started dabbling. And once Ovitz saw the writing on the wall and saw all of the movie and music people kind of going after the startup, he was like, all right, I know where my bread is buttered. I'm gonna just hit the eject button. And he ended up turning on Travis, uh, his own founder, and Travis never forgot that. I think Mm -hmm. he really formed this idea that you can't trust your investors. In the end, they only just wanna get money and, and don't really care about you or the company. And that's something that he took throughout his entire career. And it would become a self-fulfilling prophecy later on.
0: <laughs> this might be difficult to summarize because you spend quite a few chapters on Uber's rise, but how did the company come to be? And who were the main players in getting it off the ground?
1: It's funny because they had created their own founding story that wasn't actually true. Um, <laughs> they said they came up with the app in Paris together, Travis and this other guy, Garrett Camp. But really, it was Garrett Camp was this early tech CEO. He, he founded a site called, I don't know if you remember, StumbleUpon. Was nope. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know <laughs> if it was largely an American thing or uh, whatever. Maybe it was just, but it was, uh, it was kind of like a pre-Facebook type thing where you can stumble upon different websites. And he sold it for, you know, tens of millions of dollars and was just sort of bumming around San Francisco and enjoying his life. And uh, unlike being in London, you can't really, there was zero taxi sort of infrastructure in San Francisco. I used to work at Wired in, in uh, South of Market in San Francisco in 2009, and it was like a 50-50 chance a cab would come and get me if I had to get into any meeting. And so basically, it was this millionaire guy, Garrett Camp, wanted to build a service for himself, where as the iPhone was beginning to sort of really take off the idea that you could like press a button and get a car to you immediately was really attractive to him,
0: so Kalanick really enjoyed being CEO of what became a successful startup yeah. What was his vision for the company and how did he try to achieve it?
1: So Garrett Camp was like the founding visionary guy, but uh, they brought in Kalanick to be the real CEO eventually and You know, originally this was just gonna be a sort of high-end black car service, and they called it Uber Cab, but it was basically like uh, limousines and black Mm. cars. Um, maybe it would have been a successful thing in some of the cities that they were in, you know, maybe like a service for the elite, for people who want to show up, whatever, in style in a, in a <laughs> sorry, it's just funny to think about right now, yeah. <laughs> but uh, show up in a limo somewhere. And then in, I want to say 2012, around then, uh, this competing company called Lyft ended up showing up and Lyft's idea which was revolutionary, I guess, is instead of just having registered vehicles being able to drive, it was basically anyone with a car could just drive you anywhere. And it's funny because people think that Uber popularized the thing, but they really just ripped it off from Lyft, who ripped it off from another company called Sidecar. And I think like the big thing about the Valley is it doesn't matter if you have an idea first, it matters if you do it the best. Mm. And so um, Uber took that and poured barrels of money on it to just immediately spread that to as many cities as possible because they, uh, Travis, saw the possibility of just how big this idea could be when you weren't just going after one small market, you were going after, let's say, all of transportation.
0: And this is where the story starts to get really interesting. Uber quickly found themselves popular with users of the service, but deeply unpopular with city officials. They were a disruptor in many senses of the word, basically breaking the law. Cabs and taxis are licensed, but Uber brought a new vision for the industry, which ignored the pesky regulations. And how they reacted to this early run-in with transport officials would give everyone their first insight into Uber's strategy for dealing with legal or ethical barriers in the future.
1: Kalanick and this other guy, Ryan Graves, who's one of his lieutenants and and a few other early employees, they get a cease and desist letter from the San Francisco Transportation Authority. And basically Kalanick's response was like, just forget it, right? Like Hmm. we can drop the word cab From our name because that it might have some extra regulatory strings that if you want to call yourself a cab service like so they they stopped calling themselves a cab service but basically didn't do anything else like just kept going and you know it's funny because it seems kind of brazen but at the same time one of the employees that i talked to the the phrase that they used really struck me which was the law is not what is written it's what is enforced and the -hmm. whole point of uber is just every city and barreling into it so that regulators can't even catch you. like They're totally caught off guard, under equipped, aren't able to even really always tell when a car is an Uber or not. So the idea that they were just flooding the zone in spite of regulators' consistent like denials of their service was kind of revolutionary. And I have as many criticisms of Travis and the company as I do admiration. It's kind of a split thing among technologists because some of them were just like, look, this is how you do things. This, this is how you disrupt the existing order when it's not going to just change otherwise.
0: How did they deal with de Blasio specifically?
1: <laughs> so Mayor de Blasio in New York, that was really fun. I, I was living in New York at the time. Uh, I live in San Francisco now. but I, they, So de Blasio was going to put this cap on how many Ubers can be on the road. Uber is strongly against that because their whole model is based on supply and demand, and they just want to have as many drivers as possible when, so it doesn't take a long time for people to get cars. So they tried some negotiating, but de Blasio was pretty strongly going to you know, move towards this cap. So Uber decides to change the programming of its app to show users in New York this little new mode called de Blasio mode, like inside of the app. And if you switched over to de Blasio mode, it would show your wait times were like 30 minutes or 40 minutes, like some sort of like. <laughs> it was really amazing, cause, uh, and I remember using, I was like, oh my God, what is this? But the whole point was like, if you let the mayor do this, your life in Uber is gonna be awful now, and you're gonna have to wait like a half an hour or more for a car, press this button to send an automated letter to the mayor's office or to send a phone call directly to them right now. And it worked, like it just, I mean, Imagine turning on a switch for the hundreds of thousands of people that use your app and just flooding the mayor's office with complaints. And just a few days before it was supposed to go into effect, uh, de Blasio ended up backing down.
0: And Kalanick didn't only have issues with uh, government officials. He also didn't like a lot of journalists. What was your own relationship with him like?
1: I would say not great. <laughs> uh, no, I think, um, look, I've always tried to be fair to the company, and I have like a healthy relationship with their comms team because I can just be like, look, this is what I have. You're welcome to hear your side of the story, but I got to do my job. But I, I think he felt unfairly targeted for a long time around how the press portrayed him. Every profile was just about how aggressive he was. and there was supposed to be I remember getting told he was doing this Vanity Fair profile that was trying to humanize him more and and it ended up being like the first line was like Travis Kalanick has a face like a fist right wow. <laughs> he was like what the hell what was that right and it's really funny a lot of people around him would tell me that they had a sort of Trumpian vibe from him like he just felt very unfairly targeted a lot of the time and if people only sort of understood and didn't listen to the press uh, (laughs) that that they would get it you know i think we covered him fairly accurately and i think there were some things that he did that he didn't want to be out there but that's just sort of how it goes but i think the press played a very interesting role in the you know rise and fall of travis and how the company has fared so far
0: Throughout the book, there are loads of examples of leaks or journalists overhearing things that they weren't supposed to. But Uber really got it wrong over the Gramercy dinner, which was originally meant to be damage control for Kalanick's image. Now, you were there. Can you tell us that story? So
1: I was in one part of it, but I was not at the dinner. I made that distinction only because that dinner was supposed to be off the record. But someone else didn't get the memo. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's this part in 2015 where Travis is feeling targeted. he Every profile of him is just about how he's a tech bro and a a huge jerk or, like, uh, denigrates women or or whatever. And so their big idea was, like, okay, we're going to go on a a charm offensive and just, like, make people like him, right? And I did meet him earlier in the day at, like, an off-the-record thing, but I was not apparently VIP enough to be invited to the dinner later on. <laughs> but uh, there's this dinner that they have, and they have like some famous people. I guess Edward Norton, the actor, was like an early user of Uber and friends with Travis. So he was there weirdly, <laughs> and a few other famous people. So Ben Smith of BuzzFeed, editor in chief of BuzzFeed, shows up as well. And Ben was not told it was an off the record dinner. He's just the last minute edition, invited by the author Michael Wolf, uh, who was there. And so Ben is sitting and you know, it's like a perfunctory dinner, like just sort of being charmed by the executives. And one of the executives across the table, uh, named Emil Michael, uh, who is Travis's sort of chief business officer guy, starts talking about how awful these journalists are to uber and to travis and to emil and how unfair it is and this one particular journalist sarah Lacey, is the one who just will not stop going after him and what if we started digging into their lives and we spent a million dollars hiring opposition researchers to dig into their personal lives and, and start throwing that dirt out there and ben smith is sitting there and he can't believe his ears he's like what what are you doing like what like don't you think that if the press found out about you doing that, that you would be even even worse trouble? And Emil goes, well, they wouldn't find out about us doing it. We would just do it. And wow. Then, and then um, Ben Smith, you know, politely thanked them for a nice evening, went home and typed up his story and published it the next day. <laughs> so it didn't really work out that well.
0: After the break, Mike tells us how this pattern of bad PR mistakes ended up costing Kalinick his empire and Uber its reputation.
1: The last straw was uh, Travis berating a driver on camera. Like, there's really the power of, like, a video of the CEO of a company basically saying that the driver's worth nothing or, like, that they don't matter, their feelings don't matter, whatever. It was very powerful. Everyone was just like, well, this is what he thinks of his workforce, you know, this is what he thinks of the millions of people who drive for the company.
0: More on that after the break. The way things are isn't the way they have to be. But knowing what to challenge and how to change it isn't always clear. That's why independent journalism has never mattered more. When we are free to follow any lead and question any authority, we can confront the status quo, uncover vital alternatives and bring clarity to the world's most complex issues. We can help our readers understand the world so together we can fight for a better one. Hope is power. And with your support, you'll always find it at The Guardian. Welcome back to Chips with Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, New York Times technology correspondent Mike Isaac told us the history of Uber's rise, and we've covered the six years from its early vision as a limousine service for elite users to an industry disruptor with an ambition to be the Amazon of transport. As Mike explained, Uber's strategy for dealing with obstacles like the law or investigative journalism was often shaped by CEO Travis Kalanick's aggressive management style, which would ultimately lead to his being ousted in typically dramatic fashion.
1: At a hotel in Chicago, while Travis was secretly working to find his COO, chief operating officer, that would work alongside of him, These investors who are essentially trying to pull off a coup confront him in this hotel room, slide a letter across the table and say, we would like your resignation by the end of the day, or we're going to go public to the New York Times and say, we want you out and humiliate you in public.
0: This probably shouldn't be surprising. At its height, Uber was valued at $70 million. But following a controversial year for the company, the value had plummeted, And, after all, this results-based culture was at the core of the company Kalanick had created.
1: As long as you hit your numbers and were aggressive with your growth targets and were doing what he wanted, which was just adding more trips in your city, then other sorts of bad behavior would go sort of unaccounted for, unchecked, I guess. And so that would include a manager in Brazil like throwing coffee cups at his employees' heads or someone being threatened with a baseball bat if he didn't hit his numbers or rampant sort of misogyny and real poor behavior towards women. And and I think it really came to a head later on uh, with uh, this woman, Susan Fowler, who wrote a, a blog post that just sort of detailed her history of that. But the big problem was that even when employees would complain there was no real like hr just sort of you know i think most of the folks i talked to just believed that hr was there to protect the company and and to dismiss complaints rather than to escalate them or get rid of problematic people
0: so this blog post from Susan Fowler who's a Mm. former employee making allegations of sexual harassment and discrimination at Uber. That came as part of what you call the nightmare year (laughs) for Uber. So they had the delete Uber hashtag Mm. and Kalanick being forced off of Trump's business advisory council. Video of him screaming at one of his drivers. And in response to this blog post these allegations of sexual harassment and discrimination he said that there would be an urgent investigation and he said quote there can be absolutely no place for this kind of behavior at uber and anyone who behaves this way or thinks this is okay will be fired so it seems like he's taking a strong stance did anything actually end up changing (laughs) at uber
1: i mean that sort of response is pretty disingenuous just because it was always like that there and Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like a pearl clutching at something that has always existed but now people have found out about it right and you know i guess to be fair to travis He's at the highest level, so maybe not everything floated up to top to his level and he didn't hear about every complaint, but I still think the tone is set from the top, the idea that he's created this like Hobbesian cutthroat environment inside the company where only the only thing that counts is like making your numbers and all the other bad behavior is basically excused or swept under the rug, that starts and ends with him, you know? And so... They did end up doing this big investigation. Eric Holder, a former attorney general of the United States, was brought in, and he sort of did a complete roto-rooter plumbing, just figure out, open up every closet, dig up every body, try to figure out all the bad stuff that happened inside of this company over the past eight years. And they amassed an enormous dossier of really awful behavior, right? And to their credit, they fired or pushed out at least 20 people that they could prove Required it, or if they weren't already gone. But the the day of the presentation of the Holder report, like there, three of the board directors are on stage, sort of making the case that it's a new company, we're gonna change, everything is great. And then one of them like makes a sexist comment on stage about women talking too much or something, just like very sort of like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Right now, um, it kind of showed how baked in these problems were, and not just at the bottom level. It just sort of was like at every level, you know.
0: So every now and then throughout the book, you write about your own involvement in the story of yeah. Uber. And in particular, I imagine meeting the employee who would go on to tell you about Greyball was the kind of scoop that journalists dream of. Can you tell me that story?
1: <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. That was, um, you're exactly right. It's one of those things that you're like, oh my God, this is a huge story <laughs> that's like falling into my lap. I think in journalism, stories lead to more stories, right? You write about something and then people read it and then they talk to you about it or whatever. I wrote a story about... Uber's $25 million party in Las Vegas and this sort of crazy Bacchanal in which Beyonce was the guest of honor playing music for all these employees. Just like absolutely absurd Wolf of Wall Street tech culture thing. Mm-hmm. And it definitely struck a chord. Uh, and and um, a former employee had read it and was just like, you have really detailed stuff that other people haven't seen, but you have to hear about this one thing. And so we have this like very clandestine sort of meeting where they want me to go to this really dingy pizza parlor, not a fancy restaurant because he didn't want to be seen with me. And (laughs) he sort of just lays out all this information about this program that they had called Grayball. And... The funny thing about the Valley is that they always come up with these, like, silly code names to make things sound kind of like, you know, spy movie-ish. And <laughs> I, my point has always been, like, if you want people to not dig into your weird projects, that don't name them something that sounds like <laughs> a James Bond movie, right? Yep. And so Grayball initially was sort of a benign software tool inside, but eventually they used it to hide cars from regulators when they would move into cities. So... Back in 2014, which seems like a very long time ago now, Hmm. there was no actual laws around ride sharing in a lot of these cities. Right. And so Uber's whole thing was we're going to just barrel in and start doing it, drum up enough demand to get people on our side. And then they can't really shut us down. So in Portland, the regulators were like, no, if you come in here, we're going to pull you over, ticket you and impound your cars and probably throw you in jail or whatever, just sort of really push back strong and call Uber's bluff. So Uber, similar to its de Blasio mode sure. um, trickery, they created a pretty clever software tool to thwart regulators. And that what Grayball would do is essentially you could tag a transportation official with the small piece of code. And if they tried to call an Uber with their app, it would either serve them up a ghost car, or a fake version of the app, or basically make the app useless for them and just sort of like put them in the dark, but without them really knowing it, they just thought the service was too busy for them to get a car. Wow. Yeah. So it was some of the technologists I talked to thought it was very creative. And <laughs> some of the lawyers I talked to thought it was obstruction of justice. Uh-huh. So there was kind of a division on on how people saw it. but. To even figure out who was a regulator and who was a transportation official, they had to go even further and digging into the credit card numbers that were used to sign up and see if they were tied to like a police union or seeing if the their geo location data was in or around the the regulatory offices or the police station, or in some cases following people to their houses or like different areas to see if they were going home to an address tied to a police officer's house. So it was just very cloak and dagger stuff carried out by people who, and to do a lot of this, by the way, Uber had hired ex-CIA, NSA, FBI contractors. <laughs> so. It seemed like spy craft, and it kind of was. Uh-huh. And um, at the same time, it, it worked, you know. Um, this happened in 2014, 2015, and we didn't report it. I didn't get this tip, and the story didn't go up until 2017. So a lot of the damage, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. was done, or a lot of it already just sort of happened without anyone knowing it until later.
0: Uber did eventually admit wrongdoing after your scoop. And their chief security officer, Joe Sullivan, said in a blog post, we have started a review of the different ways this technology has been used to date. But as you said, the damage had been done. At least Uber had achieved what they wanted. But had the damage been done for... Uber? Like, did they face any consequences?
1: After our story came out, there were a number of attorneys general in different states who, you know, filed lawsuits. The Department of Justice in the U.S. opened up an investigation. There are a number of, like, early attempts to at least hold Uber to account for this just because it was serious, It would potentially criminal charge. That said, you know, when Uber had its, like, great reformation, (laughs) uh, they they brought in this top lawyer, former ex-Department of Justice guy. His name is Tony West, and he basically was like, all right, we're just going to settle everything. Let's wrap up all the bad behavior we have into a giant basket, pay a couple hundred million dollars to the government, and apologize or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. and say we're a new company now. So they didn't really... No one went to jail. Uh, no one uh, really faced supreme consequences, and they, they only paid, I mean, a couple hundred million dollars is a lot of money, but at the same time, Uber raised $10 billion in private capital over its time before it even went public. So think it was kind of a slap on the wrist
0: mm. it has affected some of their ability to do the things they've wanted to do though right like with the licensing decisions here in london
1: yeah tfl just uh, as recently as you know this past week or so they've had problems with getting that operating license and renewing it i remember what was it 18 months ago when it was up for renewal and instead of getting the five-year operating license, they might have gotten denied, and then they ended up getting a sort of temporary one for 18 months under review. Mm. Now they're trying to get a five-year one and uh, instead just got two months, Mm -hmm. so they're gonna kick that can down the road. So they still have, you know, even if they didn't pay a legal price, they still have a lot of reputational baggage that I think is carried around with them to this day.
0: Coming back to Kalanick, what was the last straw that marked the end of him as CEO?
1: I think, you know, you mentioned like their, their nightmare year, the scandal after scandal sort of breaking. I really do think, though, that the last straw was uh, Travis berating a driver on camera. Like there's really the power of like a video of the CEO of a company basically saying that the driver's worth nothing or mm-hmm. like that they don't matter, their feelings don't matter, whatever, it was very powerful. Everyone was just like, well, this is what he thinks of his workforce you know this is what he thinks of the millions of people who drive for the company and um that just got replayed over and over it was clear he had to take some sort of leave or whatever um and he said he was going to take a leave but that was really just um he just ended up continuing to work only in a more secret capacity (laughs) so after that i think there was a cabal of Investors, um, I like just saying cabal, (laughs) who have decided. All right, this is enough. Travis has knocked the valuation of this company to from like seventy billion to around forty. You know, halved it, and maybe one day might go to zero. So we have to do something. So at a at a hotel in Chicago, while Travis was secretly working to find his COO, chief operating officer, that would work alongside of him these investors who are essentially trying to pull off a coup, confront him in this hotel room, slide a letter across the table and say, we would like your resignation by the end of the day, or we're going to go public to the New York Times and say, we want you out and humiliate you in public.
0: So in the end, the board got their wish and he was ousted, but did become public (laughs) in the end, as with most of the stories you cover in the book. So how did the story get leaked to you?
1: I was kind of self-conscious about writing myself into the book, but mm-hmm. I end up becoming a part of the story inadvertently, I guess. Somewhere along the line, someone decided that they wanted the whole story out there. The The negotiation behind the scenes was that they were going to give Travis a soft landing and let him sort of say, I'm going to go take time off because tragically his mother just died a few weeks before and it was very sudden and a freak accident, a boating accident. So the idea was they were gonna uh, let him just step down quietly of his own accord after that. But um, I think someone wanted all of that out there, just all of the the real nuts and bolts out there just to make sure that he didn't come back, (laughs) you know? And um, I was given all the details of the whole negotiation and the day long sort of back and forth between the investors and Travis, and Travis sort of fighting to keep his job, but then eventually deciding, no, I'm gonna step down. And then we got it, like it was like probably like 10 or 11 o'clock at night in, in California when I got the story and put it up online really quickly. And then everything just started imploding from there. He stepped down, but after he read the details of his entire ouster, splashed across the front page of the New York Times, he was not happy and, and tried to fight his way back in for a few months. To no avail, but still.
0: <laughs> the Uber story didn't stop in 2017. Dara Shahi, formerly the CEO of Expedia, was announced as Kalanick's replacement. But was it a case of, meet the new boss, same as the old boss?
1: Dara Khashoggi's whole thing was basically to be the anti-Travis, to be like the steady hand. I think the Washington Post called him the dad of Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. because he was just very warm and nice and non-threatening or whatever. Just the opposite of the aggression that Travis displayed. And so he basically embarked on a two-year apology tour saying, sorry, we're so bad, but we're not going to be that bad anymore.
0: Mm he did make some positive changes within the company and uber kind of managed to stay out of the spotlight for a couple of years but they didn't fare as they'd hoped with their ipo mm. um and they seemed to keep losing money as well so uber was one of the biggest so-called unicorns in tech you know these companies that have these huge valuations can mm. you ever see them losing that label
1: The crazy thing that we're seeing now, and it's not even crazy, the probably like normal thing that we're seeing now is just valuations are coming back down to earth, right? Mm -hmm. Like Uber was valued, I think, if not the most, then one of the most highly valued private tech companies in tech history, right? And we can look to WeWork as probably the successor to that throne, but now as, they're moving towards going public as they're showing their numbers to investors and like really just sort of explaining this is how our business works public market investors are like maybe your valuation is not does not make sense maybe <laughs> the fact that you're setting money on fire every quarter by the billion doesn't make the type of financial sense we want out of our public company maybe you need more fiscal discipline around how you operate and I, and I think that's probably a good thing, you yeah. know. I think I think they pushed those valuations up too high in the private markets and now they're coming back down to earth and and we're seeing the consequences of that whether it's uh, the CEO of WeWork stepping down which just happened or um, Uber sort of having to deal with a lackluster IPO and their valuation plummeting in the public market, their market cap plummeting and maybe that will affect other unicorns in the future.
0: And Uber has other problems as well, so uh, in September, California introduced a new bill that requires companies like Uber and Lyft to treat contract workers as employees. And just last week, Transport for London rejected Uber's application for a full operating license again.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is this the beginning of the end for Uber?
1: So I think the, the sort of grand irony of Uber is that they can like unlock an entirely new mode of transportation for the world and still perhaps not be a profitable business or like a viable business. Dara keeps saying... They have a path to profitability, and they want to be a transportation platform, and platform is like the buzzword bingo of every tech company these days, but like everyone wants to be a platform. Mm-hmm. But uh, they are moving into a bunch of different lines of business, whether that's trucking or like freight or uh, Uber Eats, which is you know big at, across the world now. That is costing them a lot of money to grow, right? So. I don't know. I'm trying to see the day that they start turning a profit. It's it's hard for me to see how far out that's going to be and if he will have enough time to execute on that vision that he has before investors start getting upset and wanting them to stop just bleeding money when they're doing
0: it. You had the opportunity to talk to Kalanick the day he testified. <laughs> The conversation was off the record so i won't ask what it was about but it must have been pretty surreal to talk to him that day given the circumstances did you ever feel bad for this man that you've written so much about
1: i went into this book just sort of not knowing how i was going to write about him and i wrote about him for a long time and kind of not as a character that was particularly lovable but i did want to humanize him a bit more and that occasion as well as other times have we met like he's very charming he's very gregarious i know why people sort of flock to him because he does have this similar to steve jobs like a reality distortion field that pulls you in and that makes you want to believe in them and i think that's probably a characteristic of a lot of these charismatic ceos i think adam newman at we work probably had a similar thing that convinced people to invest all this money in him and some crazy valuation and so I think the book, I've heard from ex-employees and current employees who have read it and said that they thought I was more fair to Kalanick than they thought I was going to be. And I think that's good. I think he's a human. And and I wanted to get a real well-rounded picture of of what this guy was and is and how he created this company and then how that hubris ended up doing him in in the end, you know.
0: Have you sent him a copy of the book?
1: (laughs) I have not. I I hope he buys it. (laughs)
0: Huge thanks to Mike Isaac for joining us to talk about his book, Super Pumped. You can find a link to the book in the description of this podcast at TheGuardian.com. As you know, we're always looking for great ideas for the show, so make sure to drop me a line at chipspodcast at TheGuardian.com. But that's all from me. I'm off home now, on the train. This episode of Chips is produced by Danielle Stevens and Jeff Jean. I'm Jordan Erica Webber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.
1: Everybody in your
0: crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savoury
1: tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
0: And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count.